Hello, welcome to the sixth episode of the series Bear Down by Frederick Bachman. 14. It's Saturday and everything is going to happen today. All the very best and all the very worst. The time is a quarter to six in the morning when Maya is hunting through the kitchen cupboards in search of painkillers. She goes back to bed feeling feverish and full of snot and curls up next to Anna. She's almost asleep when Anna kicks her and mutters sleepily, Play for me. Be quiet. Play for me, Maya grunts. All right, I've got a question for you. Always hear me play the guitar every time you ask me to or have me not kill you with it. Anna sulks in silence for a long time. Then she gently touches Maya's thigh with her permanently ice-cold toes. Please? So Maya gives up and starts playing because Anna loves falling asleep to the sound of the guitar and because Maya loves her. The last thing Maya thinks before she too falls asleep with her headache and cough is that it feels like she ought to spend the day in bed. The yard lies in thick darkness as Peter parks the little car outside the garage beside the last building before the town ends and the forest takes over in the west. He slept three anxious hours and woke up feeling overwhelmed. Hog, his childhood friend, is standing in a poorly lit workshop bent over the engine of a Ford so old that it looks like it needs magic rather than a red. He's always been known as Hog because he played like a wild boar. He's the same height as Peter but looks twice as well. His stomach may have softened a little since their hockey years, but his arms and shoulders still look hard enough to be beaten out of steel. He's wearing a t-shirt even though the garage door is open and shakes Peter's hand, unconcerned about the fact that Peter doesn't have anything with which to wipe off the sticky mixture of oil and dirt left on his skin. Hogg is well aware that the sticky mess will drive his friend mad. Thought Kira said you were going to drop it off yesterday, he says, grinning at the car. I was, Peter admits, doing his best not to think about the mess on his fingers. Hogg lets out a dry laugh, hands him a rag and scratches his beard, which is so thick and unkempt, it starts to look like a shaggy ski mask. Annoyed? Let's just say she wasn't exactly over the moon, Peter confesses. You want coffee? Have you got any fresh? Hogg chuckles. Fresh coffee? Have you gone all soft now? There's some instant and a kettle in the corner. I think I'll leave it. Hogg pats his hand intentionally as he walks past and Peter wipes it with an irritated smile. Friends for 40 years, still the same joke. Hogg grabs a torch and heads out into the yard and Peter stands next to him shivering, full of the sense of inadequacy that only afflicts a man of a certain generation when he watches another man from the same generation repair his wife's car. Hogg straightens up and spares Peter any technical job. Piece of crap, Bobo can do it when he wakes up. You can come and pick it up at 9. He goes back into the garage and absentmindedly picks up one of the Ford's heavy tires, making it look about as challenging as it is for Peter to put paper in the recycling. Bobo has unfortunately inherited both his father's raw strength and indifferent skating abilities. Hogg was a terrifying defensive player in his day, but Sune always used to sigh that lad even manages to trip over the blue lions. Maybe you could let Bobo have a bit of a rest today. Big game this afternoon, Peter says. Hogg raises an eyebrow without looking up, then wipes his hand across his face to get rid of the sweat, leaving glossy stains of oil in his beard. It'll take two hours to fix your car. If you're picking it up at nine, Bobo won't have to start until seven. That's rest. Peter opens his mouth but says nothing. A game of hockey is a game of hockey, but tomorrow this family will have to get up and earn a living again. Bobo is a solid back, but nowhere near professional standard. There are two younger kids in the family, and the global economy waits for no man. Bear shits in the woods, and everyone shits on Bear Town. Hogg offers him a lift home, but he's happy to walk. Needs to calm his nerves. He walks past the factory, which provides work for fewer and fewer people. He passes the big supermarket which has put all the smaller stores out of business. He turns on the road leading to the centre of the town, then on the main shopping street. The street gets shorter and shorter every day.
Ramona has survived long enough to get her pension, but one of the good things about owning your own pub is that no one can force you to stop working. The bearskin has been hers since it stopped being her mother's and before that it belonged to her grandfather. It still looks much the same, but grandfather used to smoke indoors and now Ramona smokes outside. Three before breakfast, she lights the last of them on the dying stub of the second. The boys who play billiard and drink beer on a tab here every evening affectionately call her the Marlboro mum. She has no children of her own. Holger couldn't have any and perhaps never needed them either. The only family he wanted apart from Ramona was his sporting family, he used to say. Someone once asked him if there was any sports he didn't like and he replied, Politics. They should stop showing that on TV. If the house had been on fire, he would have rescued Ramona first. But she'd had had to be clutching their Beartown ice hockey season tickets when he did so. It was theirs, that ridiculous sport. All his loudest laughter and warmest embraces had been left behind in the stands. She was the one who smoked. He was the one who got cancer. I'm suffering from an ironic illness, he declared breezily. Ramona refuses to let anyone say that he died. She says he left her because that's how she sees it, like a betrayal. She has been left standing in the snow like a bare tree trunk without any bark, unprotected now that he's no longer here. She has learned how to make the days pass. You just do. When the shift at the factory gets out in the afternoon, the bearskin fills with young men she calls the boys and whom the police and the hockey club calls far worse things. They're capable of a lot of crap, but they love Ramona the way Holger loved her. Maybe she's a bit too protective of them. She knows that. Beartown nurtures tough people and the way life has turned out hasn't made her boys any softer. But they're all she has left of him, as close to her memories as she can bear to go. Death does strange, incomprehensible things to loving souls. She still lives in the apartment above the pub. Some of the boys who drive forklifts over in the supermarket warehouse buy food for her there now that the little store across the road has closed down. So the old woman no longer goes any further than the ashtray outside the door. Eleven years have passed since Holger left her and at every A-team game, even when the rink is sold out, there are always two empty seats in the stands. Peter sees her from a long way off. She waits for him to get closer. Are you looking for something, sir? Ramona asks. She's got older, but she's like her pub. Always the same. The people who don't like the fact that the bearskin offers a refuge to the town's thugs each evening talk about her as an unpleasant sociopathic old woman who's losing her marbles. But even if Peter hardly ever sees her these days, it still feels like coming home after a long journey each time he does. Don't know yet, he smiles. Nervous about the game? He doesn't have to answer. She stubs her third cigarette out under her shoe, tucks the butt inside the packet and says, Whiskey? He looks up at the sky. Soon the town will wake up and even the sun seems to be planning an early appearance. Everyone will wake up to the dream that a junior team game can change everything. Can it make the council turn its gaze towards the forest again? Set up a hockey academy, maybe even build a shopping centre? Make it so people giving directions say, stay on the road past head instead of if you get to Beartown, you've gone too far? Peter has spent so long convincing other people of all that. He no longer knows if he believes it himself. A cup of coffee would be good, he says. She lets out a hoarse chuckle and maneuvers herself down the steps into the pub. That's always the way with sons of fathers who liked whiskey a little too much. You either drink it all the time or not at all. There's no in-between in some families. Peter went to the bearskin more times before he turned 18 than he's been since. He usually had to carry his dad home. Sometimes he had to help him beat up a debt collector from head while he was at it. The bar looks the same now as it did back then. 
smells a bit less of smoke and considering what else a basement bar can smell of instead, that isn't altogether a good thing. It's empty now, of course. Peter never comes here in the evening. It isn't a healthy environment for the GM of an underperforming A team. The old men in the bar have always had a lot to say, but the younger men sometimes go further than harsh words these days. There's a constant threat of violence hidden just beneath the surface of a certain type of person in this town that Peter never noticed when he was growing up but which struck him all the more plainly after he came home from Canada. Neither hockey, nor school, nor the economy ever managed to find a way out for these people, and they emanate a silent fury. They are known as the pack now, even if no one ever hears them say that themselves. The team's official supporters club has always been called Ursus Arctis, and technically the men who hang out at the Bearskin belong to nothing but that, along with the pensioners, preschool teachers and parents of young families in the seats in the stands. The pack has no membership cards or t-shirts. The town is small enough for big secrets. But Peter knows that even when they are at their strongest, there are never more than 30 or 40 of them. Yet that's enough to require extra police at eight team games in order to guarantee security. Players who have been recruited from other towns and are thought not to have performed well enough on the ice in comparison to their paychecks have occasionally shown up in Peter's office out of the blue wanting to tear up their contracts and move. Reporters from the local papers ask questions one day and are inexplicably uninterested the following morning. The pack has scared their opponents away from coming to Beartown but sadly the same thing applies to sponsors. The 20-something men at the Bearskin have become the most conservative people in town. They don't want a modern bear town because they know that a modern bear town won't want them. Ramona pushes the cup of coffee across the bar, then knocks on the wood. Is there something you need to talk about? Peter scratches his head. The Marlboro mum was always Beartown's preeminent psychologist. Even if her standard prescription was usually, pull yourself together, there's others have got it worse. I've just got a lot on my mind, that's all. He looks at the walls covered with game jerseys and pictures of players, pennants and scarves. When did you last see a game, Ramona? Haven't seen one since Holger left me. You know that, son. Peter turns his cup between his fingers, reaches for his wallet. When Ramona waves her hand dismissively, he puts the money down on the bar anyway. If you don't want it for the coffee, you can always put it in the kitty. She nods appreciatively and takes the notes. The kitty is a box she keeps in her bedroom. She uses it to help when one of the boys loses his job and can't pay the bills. The person who needs it right now is someone from your old line. Robert Holt has lost his job at the factory. He's spending too much time here. Oh shit, Peter says, because he doesn't know what else to say. He had meant to call Robbie from Canada. He had meant to call him when he moved home. Good intentions don't count. 20 years is too long for him to know how to start the conversation now. Should he apologize? What for? How? His eyes roam across the walls again. Hockey, he says. Do you ever think about what a strange sport it is, Ramona? The rules, the ring. Who on earth would come up with something like that? Someone who needed to give drunk men with rifles a less dangerous hobby, the aged landlady suggests. I just mean, damn, this might sound a bit crazy, but sometimes you can't help wondering if we don't take all this a bit too seriously. If we aren't putting too much pressure on the juniors, they are not really much more than kids. Ramona pours herself a glass of whiskey. Breakfast is, after all, the most important meal of the day. That depends what we want from the kids and what the kids want from hockey. Peter clutches his cup tighter. And what do we want, Ramona? What can the sport give us? We devote our whole lives to it. And what can we hope to get at best? A few moments, a few victories, a few seconds when we feel bigger than we really are, a few isolated opportunities to imagine that we are... 
immortal and it's a lie it really isn't important silence settles between them untouched only when peter pushes his empty cup back across the bar and stands up to leave does the old widow drains her glass and grunts the only thing the sport gives us are moments but what the hell is life peter apart from moments the best psychologist in town kira gathers together leo's pads folds his laundry packs his bag and puts it in the hall he's 12 he ought to do his own packing she knows that but she also knows that she's the one who has to drive him to practice and will have to come straight back to pick up half his things if he packs for himself she's done she sits down at the computer for half an hour when leo was at primary school his teacher once told them during a parent consultation what he said when he was asked about what his parents did my dad works with hockey my mom writes emails she puts the coffee on takes a number of things off her list and on her calendar takes a several deep breaths and feels the heaviness in her chest panic attacks the psychologist said 6 months ago and kira never went back after that she felt ashamed as if life wasn't happy enough as if she wasn't content how could she possibly explain that to her family panic attacks what did that even mean a lawyer wife of the gm hockey mom and god knows she loves being all three of those but sometimes she stops the car in the forest going one way or the other and sits in the darkness crying she remembers her own mother on those occasions the way she would wipe the tears from her children's cheek and whisper no one ever said life was going to be easy being a parent makes you feel like a blanket that's always too small no matter how hard you try to cover everyone there's always someone who's freezing she wakes leo at 8 His breakfast is already on the table. She'll be driving him to practice in half an hour. Then she'll come home and pick up Anna and Maya so that the three of them can do a voluntary shift at the cafeteria during the juniors game. Afterwards, Leo will need driving to a friend's and Maya to one of hers presumably. Then Kira hopes Peter will get back from the office in time for them to have a glass of wine together. Maybe some heated up lasagna from the freezer before he falls asleep from exhaustion. and she sits up until midnight answering emails in an inbox that never empties tomorrow is sunday and there will be hockey clothes to wash and bags to be packed and teenagers to be woken then back to work on monday and work quite honestly has been shit recently since she turned down the offer of promotion the demands on her have ironically enough become worse she knows she is only allowed to arrive last each morning and leave first in the afternoon because she is the best at what she does but it's been a long time since she felt she was the best she could be she doesn't have the time she's not up to it when the kids were little she saw so many other parents lose control in the stands at the ring and she couldn't understand them but now she does the children's hobbies aren't only the children's hobbies the parents put just as many hours into them year after year sacrificing so much paying out such huge amounts of money that their significance eat its way even into adult brains they start to symbolize other things compensating for or reinforcing the parents own failure kira knows it sounds silly she knows it's just a silly game in a silly sport but deep down she's nervous too as well as feeling nervous on behalf of peter and the juniors and the club and the town today deep down she could also do with winning at something she goes past maya's room picks up some clothes from the floor and when her daughter whimpers in her sleep she puts her hand on her forehead it's hot In a couple of hours Kira will be surprised by the fact that her daughter voluntarily and almost eagerly insists on going with them to the ring regardless. She usually plays the martyr as hard as she can if she finds so much as a split end in order to have an excuse not to have to go to hockey. In hindsight Kira will wish a thousand times over that she had forced her daughter to stay at home. 15 There are plenty of things that hurt people without people ever really knowing why. 
एंगजाइटी कैन एक्ट एज इंटरनल ग्रेविटी श्रिंकिंग द सोल पेंजी हैज ऑलवेज बिन गुड एट फॉलोइंग स्लीप एंड बैड एट एक्चुअली स्लीपिंग He wakes up early on the day of the game but not from nerves that's never bothered him. He cycles away from home before his mum wakes up, leaves his bike at the edge of the forest and walks the last few miles to Audrey's canal. He sits in the yard patting the dogs until the other two sisters Katya and Gabby also show up. They kiss their little brother on the top of his head. Then their eldest sister comes out and slaps him hard on the back of the neck with her open hand and asks if it's true he's called his teacher sweet cheeks. He never lies to Audrey. She slaps him on the back of the neck again, then kisses him just as hard and whispers that she loves him and that she'll never let anything bad happen to him, but that she'll kill him if she hears he's spoken to a teacher like that again. The four of them eat breakfast surrounded by dogs without saying anything much. They do this once a year, a quiet act of remembrance, always early in the morning so their mother doesn't find out about it. She's never forgiven her husband. Benji was too little when it happened to harbor any hatred and his three sisters are somewhere in between. Everyone has their own struggle. When Benji gets to his feet, he doesn't ask any of them to go with him and they don't ask where he's going. They just kiss his hair one after the other, tells him he's an idiot and that they adore him. He walks back through the snow to his bicycle, then goes off to the cemetery where he crouches down with his back against Alan Ovitch's headstone, smoking joints until the pain is soft enough to let his tears start to fall. The boy's fingertips trace the warm lettering of the name on the stone. On this day 15 years ago early one March morning Alan got out his hunting rifle before the family woke up. Then he took everything that hurt him and went straight out into the forest. It doesn't matter how many times you explain it to a child. No one loses a parent that way without knowing that all the other grown-ups are lying when they say it wasn't your fault. People feel pain and it shrinks their souls. The minutes are creeping towards lunchtime. Kevin is standing in the garden dribbling a puck with soft controlled movements in complicated patterns between 40 glass bottles placed around the ice. To anyone else it would have looked like it was happening incredibly fast but to him each moment of his wrist feels leisurely. Time moves slower for him than other people. He doesn't know why. When he was little he used to get beaten up by older kids because he was too good until Benji showed up out of nowhere at training one day. They slept at each other's house every day for several months. Red Benji's sisters old superhero comics by Torchlight under the covers and both their lives suddenly made sense their own superpowers united them sweet heart kevin's mom calls from the patio door pointing at her watch as kevin approaches she carefully reaches out her hand and brushes some snow from his shoulder lets her hand rest there for longer than usual more gently than he's used to she bites her lower lip are you nervous kevin shakes his head she nods proudly We need to go. Your dad managed to get us on an earlier flight to Madrid. We'll drop you off at the rink. You'll have time to watch the first period though. He can see in her eyes that she is going to pieces, but she'll never admit it. We are in a hurry, sweetheart. Your dad's got an important meeting with a client. It's a round of golf, Kevin snaps. That's as close as he ever gets to answering back. His mother doesn't reply. Kevin knows it's pointless to carry on. The main hobby of this household is in hockey. It's avoiding any talk about feelings. If you raise your voice you lose all you get is a curt there's no point talking to you if you're just going to shout followed by a door closing somewhere in the house he starts to walk towards the hall his mother hesitates reaches her hand out to his shoulder again but stops herself and touches him tenderly on the neck instead she runs a large company and is very popular among her staff precisely because she's so approachable and sympathetic it's as if it's easier when the people involved have different job descriptions For years she used to go to bed dreaming of all the things she was going to do when she got older and had more time and now she sometimes wakes up in despair in the middle of the night because she can no longer remember what those things were 
she wanted to give kevin everything she herself never had as a child and she always thought she'd have time left over for all the other stuff talking and listening the years have passed too quickly and somewhere between her work and kevin's hockey practice he grew up she never managed to learn how to communicate with her child and now she has to tilt her head back to look at him in the eye it's even harder we'll come to the final she promises the way only a mother can when she inhabits a world where it would be inconceivable for a final to take place without her son being a part of it the cafeteria is still empty even if the rink is beginning to fill with people Kira's making coffee and getting the hot dog rolls out of the freezer. Maya's gazing out of the window. Who are you looking for? Anna teases. Maya gives her a hard stare and Anna cups her hands in front of her mouth and imitates a crackly cockpit announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask you not to open any snacks during this flight because we have someone suffering from a peanut allergy on board. Maya kicks her on the shin. Anna jumps out of the way and goes on in the same voice. We may let you lick the salt from the pin. Kira sees everything, hears everything and understands almost everything but says nothing. It's impossible to let your daughter grow up. The only problem is that you're not given a choice. Kira was 15 once upon a time and unfortunately still remembers exactly the sort of thing that used to fill her head back then. I'm just going to get the milk from the cart, she interrupts when she suspects that Anna is about to say something that neither mother nor daughter are ready to hear spoken out loud in each other's company. Kevin's father is already sitting in the car and he tells Kevin to sit in the front and starts to quiz him about his English test on Monday. His father's life is all about the quest for perfection. His whole life a chessboard where he isn't happy unless he is two moves ahead of everyone else. Success is never a coincidence. Luck can give you money but never success, he often says. His ruthlessness in business frightens people, but Kevin has never seen him raise his hand to anyone or even his voice. He can actually be quite charming when he wants without ever needing to reveal anything about himself. He never loses control, never gets excited because you just don't if you're always living in the future. Today there's a hockey game, but on Monday there's an English test. Two moves ahead. My job is to be your father, not your friend. His dad explained when Kevin mentioned once too often the fact that Benji's mother sees almost all of his games. He didn't need to get angry for Kevin to understand his point. Benji's mother doesn't sponsor the team to the tune of several million kroners every year. She doesn't make sure that the lights in the ring stay on. So she probably has rather more time to. Benji has taken the road by the lake so he can smoke without anyone seeing, which ought to stop Lit's mom from organizing another petition the way she did when they were at preschool and Lit saw Benji eating sweets, even though it wasn't a Saturday. She is very keen on justice and equality, Lit's mother, so long as they are based on her precise interpretation of those words. Almost all the parents are like that. Benji has always thought that this town must be a terrible place to be a grown-up. He buries the butt of his joint in the snow, then stands among the trees with his eyes closed and contemplates turning around and walking back the way he came, away from all this. Then maybe steal a car and leave Bear Town in the rearview mirror. He wonders if that would make him happier. The car park in front of the rink is full of people. Kevin's dad stops the car a short distance away. We haven't got time to stop and talk today, he says, nodding towards the other sponsors and parents in the car park who are as impressed by the Ardell family's money as their kid are by the way Kevin plays hockey. When you grow up in a family that never talks about feelings, you learn to hear the nuances in words like that. There's no need for him to apologize to Kevin for not driving him all the way to the door because he just did. They pat each other briefly on the shoulder and Kevin gets out. You can tell us all about it tomorrow, his dad says. There are dads who ask, did you win? But Kevin's asks, how 
many did you win by? Kevin always hears him making notes. A whole section of the basement of the house consists of neatly stacked boxes packed with thick notepads, full of careful statistics from every game Kevin has ever played all the way back to Little League. There are probably people who think it's wrong to ask your son how many goals did you score instead of did you score any goals? But Kevin's father and Kevin himself would have replied the same way. How many goals do their sons score? Kevin doesn't ask his father if they'll have time to watch the first period. He just shuts the door and hoists his bag on his shoulder. As if this were just an ordinary Saturday. But as the car pulls away, he turns and watches it until it's gone. There are many more parents than players around him in the car park. This isn't just an ordinary. His mom turns around for some reason and looks through the back window. She usually doesn't do that. Like her husband, she places great value on not being sentimental and teaching Kevin to be independent. They've watched spoiled children in the Heights grow up to become triumphs of mediocrity. Feeble, whining creatures who are going to need their hands held all their lives. And they are not going to let that happen to Kevin. Even when it hurts. Even when Kevin had to walk all the way back from head in the dark. When he was in primary school because his dad wanted to teach him the consequence of being late. Even when his mother had to pretend to be asleep when the boy got home. Even when she wept silently into her pillow. What feels comfortable for the parents isn't what's best for the child. She is convinced of that. And Kevin has grown stronger because they've allowed him to. But Kevin's mother will always remember what she sees through the rear window that Saturday and how her son looks as he stands in the car park. On the biggest day of his life, he is the loneliest boy on earth. Ahmed tries to make it look like he is only walking past the cafeteria by chance and succeeds pretty much as well as if he's tried to claim he'd eaten his best friend's ice cream by mistake. Kira is heading in the opposite direction but greets him cheerily and says far too loudly, Hi Ahmed, are you looking for Maya? Kira gestures brightly towards the cafeteria cafeteria and disappears down the stairs but turns back and calls good luck today then she tenses her muscles and growls dramatically the way she's her teenagers do out in the town when they wish each other luck knock him dead Ahmed smiles bashfully in the cafeteria Anna and Maya's voices grow louder in heated debate and Kira hurries down the stairs before one of the girls says something about boys that her mother would have to scrub away from her brain with soap water and copious amounts of riceling Benji is suddenly standing next to Kevin without Kevin having heard him arrive. His hand on his friend's shoulder and not a word about the fact that Kevin's eyes look shiny. In return, Kevin says nothing about anniversaries and symmetries. They've never needed to. They just look each other in the eye and say the only thing they always say before a game. What's the second coolest thing in the world, Kev? When Kevin doesn't respond at once, Benji elbows him in the stomach. What's the second coolest thing in the world, hotshot? Fucking, Kevin says, smiling. But first, you have to go into the ring and do the coolest thing in the world, Benji cries, swinging his bag so carelessly that Kevin has to duck. As they head off towards the locker room, Kevin raises his eyebrow and asks, So, Benjamin, have you been to the toilet? When they were little, during one of their very first matches together, Benji wet himself on the team bench. Not because he couldn't get to the bathroom, but because one of the players on the opposite team had been trying to check Kevin all through the game and Benji refused to leave the bench and risk missing a changeover, leaving Kevin unprotected. Benji bursts out laughing, as does Kevin. Then they pick up their sticks and set off to go and do the coolest thing in the world. Have you heard any of their new tracks though? They're completely insane. It's like you get high just from listening, Anna squawks. What is it you don't get? I don't like techno, Maya cries. This isn't techno, it's house, Anna snaps insulted. 
whatever i like music where they can play at least one instrument and with lyrics that contain more than five words god when are you going to listen to music that isn't a suicide soundtrack anna wonders letting her hair fall over her face and imitating maya's musical taste with drawn out air guitars strumming and groans groaned lyrics i'm so sad wanna die because my music sucks Maya laughs loudly and counters with one fist gyrating in the air and the other on an invisible laptop. Okay, this is your taste in music. Oomf, 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 drugs, yeah, oomf, 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 oomf. Besides them, Amit clears his throat. By now, they've bounced around the cafeteria so uncontrollably that Anna knocks over a whole stack of boxes of gummy bears. Maya stops, howling with laughter. Are you okay? Amit asks. We just have very, very different taste in music. Maya grins. Okay, I well, you know, I was just passing. Uh, I, I might be playing today. Amit says. Maya nods. I heard. Congratulations. Well, I'll probably be on the bench most of the time, but I'm on the team. I, but if you're not doing anything afterwards later, I mean this evening, or if you are not doing something, then I thought maybe I'd ask if we, I mean, if you like with me. Anna slips on two packets of sweets and very nearly brings down the entire drink dispenser. Maya is laughing so hard she's almost sick. Sorry, Amit. What did you say? Amit is about to reply but isn't quick enough. Suddenly, Kevin is standing next to him, not bothering to pretend that he just happened to be passing by. He's here because of Maya. She stops laughing when she sees him. Hi, he says. Hi, she says. Your name's Maya, isn't it? She nods wearily, looks him up and down. Yes. What's your name? It takes Kevin a few seconds to realize that she is joking. Everyone in Bear Town knows his name. He laughs. A frame-worn shit magnet at your service. He bows theatrically, even though he hardly ever makes jokes. And she laughs. Amit stands alongside, hating the fact that it's the best sound he knows, and it's not from him. Kevin looks at Maya in fascination. We are having a team party at my place tonight to celebrate our victory. My parents are away. Maya raises a skeptical eyebrow. You seem very sure you're going to win. Kevin looks like he doesn't understand. I always win. Really, you do, do you? Ephraim, the shit magnet. Maya laughs. One shit magnet, please. Kevin grins. Maya laughs. Anna crawls to her feet and adjusts her hair awkwardly. Will Will Benji be there at the party? Maya kicks her on the shin. Kevin nods cheerily at Maya. There, you see. Bring your friend. It'll be cool. Then he turns towards Amit for the first time and exclaims, "You'll come too, won't you? I mean, you're part of the team now." Amit tries to look self-assured. Kevin's two years older, and that's crushingly obvious as they are standing next to each other. Can I bring a friend too? He asks quietly. Sorry, Ahmed. This is just for the team. Yeah. Kevin replies, slapping him on the back. My name is Amit. Amit says, but Kevin has already walked off. Maya and Anna go back into the cafeteria, still laughing. Amit is left alone in the corridor. If he gets a single chance to make a decisive move in the match this evening, there's nothing he wouldn't give to make the most of it. As usual, to be continued very very soon. See you then.